Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for being with me today. So far, so good. It's been a great first hour with Vince Miller. And thank you for uh, uh, trying to get into the drawing for one of his books. There's still time to do that. Just text the word BOOK to 877-933-2484. Excited to talk to Dr. Everett Piper in this hour and Dr. Kent Dunnington a little bit later on in the hour. Always enjoy uh, Everett's uh, opinions and his angle and his approach He's a former president of Oklahoma Wesleyan University and is now a columnist for the Washington Times, among other things. Uh, he's authored uh, several books and always uh, enjoy hearing his perspective. So let me uh, take uh, 60 seconds and bring him on. I'm Faith Radio Manager Neil Stavum. Thanks to all who gave during our spring fundraiser, we're now over 90% of the way to being fully funded. And we can finish the work with a handful of new friends giving average-sized gifts between now and June 30th when our budget year ends. Would you give a gift of $30 a month to help support this ministry? Seven Team 360 gifts each day will meet the need by the end of June. Let today be your day to join in. Make your gift online at MyFaithRadio.com. We're learning that there's hope. He brought us into an understanding of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ so that every single person who is a child of God, who is a part of the person of Christ, is a part of the body of Christ. You would search the whole world over to find me. There's no place to Connecting faith to life together. Faith Radio. Dr. Everett Piper is a former president of Oklahoma Wesleyan University. He's a columnist for the Washington Times and author of Not a, Not a Daycare, The Devastating Consequences of Abandoning Truth. Everett, welcome. Thanks for having me on, Bill. Yeah. Happy so, to join you. I know. I'm always looking forward to hearing from you. As a, a deep thinker, I'm also thinking of the impact uh, that Robbie Zacharias had on all of us. Um, did you ever get a chance to uh, work with him or know him or... Actually, I was honored and blessed to be one of his students at the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics <laughs> in 2015. So yeah. I have the I have the honor of holding a certificate from one of his programs, and I spent five weeks studying in Oxford under the primary teaching of Michael Ramsden and several of the other, um, like Oz Guinness and John Lennox and whatnot, the wow. faculty of the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics. But that's Robbie's program, and I did have the privilege of standing on the stage with him. In fact, I posted a picture yesterday saying, what an honor to be standing next to him and standing with him and fighting the good fight. But now he stands with a host of witnesses cheering us on from heaven. Um, he's fought the good fight, and he has heard the words, well done, well done, thou good and faithful servant. He's a great man. Yeah, really. I, I, I'm glad I brought that up, because that's quite a story you've got. So... Um... Let's talk about uh, a couple of articles you recently put out on the WashingtonTimes.com. Uh, 
that freedom hangs in the balance during this election season. This is, um, uh, you say, if you prefer safety for freedom, be prepared for a master because you deserve one. Well, as you know, that column, I actually cite the speech of Ronald Reagan in 1964 at the Republican National Convention, uh, where he was endorsing the nomination of Barry Goldwater as the candidate for the presidency of the United States. And Ronald Reagan, who'd been a Democrat and had been uh, a union leader, had an epiphany, if you will, a political conversion where he swung from the progressive progressive agenda to the conservative agenda because Mm -hmm. he had a wake-up call that human liberty and human freedom we're in the balance. And Reagan qu- quoted uh, Alexander Hamilton, and I'm paraphrasing right now, where Hamilton said, you know, if you're going to sell yourself to slavery because you'd prefer safety and security rather than be a free people, then you're going to get a master because you deserve one. And Reagan was right. Alexander Hamilton was right. Plato and C.S. Lewis have inferred the same thing when they talk about first things rather than second things. Every person has a summum bonum. Go back to your freshman level philosophy course. A summum bonum is your superior good, your highest good, your first thing, your top priority. And we need to decide as an American people what our top priority, our first thing is. Is it safety and is it security or is it freedom and liberty? Because if you're going to sell your freedom for the sake of safety, you're going to get a master because you deserve one. And that's the point of my article. Mm-hmm. You, if, you, if you elevate the second things, now I'm going back to Lewis and Plato. If you elevate the second things above the first things, Lewis told us you get neither the second nor the first. But if you put the first things where they belong, you get the first things. And often you get the second things thrown in as good measure. The American people are a free people. We have a statue of liberty on our eastern shore, not a staff statue of safety. And there's a reason for that. And the reason is safety is a second thing. It is not, it has never been a first thing. And we need to get our priorities straight as we wrestle with this crisis. Mm-hmm. So, um, Everett, how do we split the difference where we fight for our liberties, yet we try to, of course, be safe enough that we're not spreading this disease any further than anyone wants it to go. Well, first of all, we attend to the facts and not politics, not power, not those that are just posturing for the sake of gain. So what are the facts? Well, number one, we know that the initial predictions were highly inflated and the computer models that they were using were broken and wrong. Number two, we now know that there are certain aspects, or excuse me, certain people within the population that are not at high risk. We should release those people to go about their daily lives without government intrusion and without Big Brother watching over their shoulder. However, if you're vulnerable, stay home away from the disease like you would during the flu season or any other time. There's no way I'm going to shame someone because they feel vulnerable or if they're in a high-risk group. And likewise, I've said it on your show before, if eating meat offends my brother, I won't eat meat. Well, if not social distancing 
offends my brother, then I probably ought to social distance. If I walk into a store and it's your store, I'm going to ask you, do you want me to wear a mask or don't you? And if you say yes, I'll wear a mask because it would offend you if I didn't. Mm -hmm. But if you say I don't care, I probably won't wear a mask because it doesn't make any difference. So there's common sense in play here that we should all honor. And frankly, the common sense isn't all that different than any other time. We've just allowed, in my view, we've just allowed politics to compromise and poison this discussion. I would agree. I mean, when I think of the fact the lockdown started around late March, and if they keep saying that it should have happened sooner, and we should have paid more attention, well, six weeks before would have been late January, and the first COVID death uh, was thought to be at around the end of February. So how do you convince states to lock down in January, January when there are no deaths? You know, close up shop, start a recession because uh, no one has died. Even uh, Dr. Fauci was saying there's nothing to worry about at this time. Exactly. The, the, they've continued to move the target. I equate this to the conversation that we're having with regard to global warming and climate change. Global warming, the, 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 the globe is warming. Okay, everything's getting hotter. The, uh, the, the, uh, the ice, ice, ice caps are going to melt. Polar bears are going to die. And we're all going to suffer because the seas are going to rise several feet and the coastal, uh, the coastal communities and cities are all going to be underwater. Well, that all proved to be untrue. So what did they do? They moved the target and they changed the language from global warming to climate change. And now we talk about the whole thing in a totally different context. We're doing the same thing when it comes to this disease right now. Well, we were supposed to flatten the curve because we didn't want to overburden the hospitals. Well, it's proven not to be the case. In almost all cases, the hospitals haven't been overburdened. So now we're moving the target again. And now you hear people like the governor of Michigan and the governor of California and the governor of New York saying things like this. We can't open up at all until we've got a vaccine and we cure the disease. Mm -hmm. Well, that isn't what you were talking about just five minutes ago. Five minutes ago, you were talking about flattening the curve. So which is it? If you want to have a logical discussion, a rational discussion, then you can't keep moving the target because that smacks of politics, not a serious desire to solve this issue. Yeah. It's interesting when I was hearing some of the statistics about the Mayo Clinic, which is in Rochester, Minnesota, very famous place. I want to say that the number of uh, reduced uh, salaries went to 20,000 employees and the hospital was poised to lose, I think, $2 billion. It's just yeah. staggering. So, so obviously the, the male clinic is not overburdened. It's not in fact because of a loss of patients, a loss of business. There's been a shocking loss of revenue. And like you just said, I've, I've read 30,000, but you know better because no, you no, no, it, it just was around the it corner, 20,000 people. Yeah, it was 30,000. Okay, so yeah. you've got 30,000 people who have either lost their jobs or been furloughed or had their salaries decreased. Mm -hmm. So how is it just, how is it a good thing to put people out of work? We've got 37 million people who have filed for unemployment, poverty, malnutrition, spousal abuse, child abuse, depress depression, suicide, addiction, alcohol use, drug use, all of these things are going to happen because we've put 37 million people out of work. But yet we've got the progressive left arguing that if it saves one life, it's all worth it. 
Really, have we ever functioned that way as a culture? Can you function that way in the real world? I've got news for you. If saving one life is always going to be the predicate for your political decisions, then you should shut down the highways. You should stop selling cars. You should shut down McDonald's and Burger King and Taco Bell. And I could go on and on and on. You should stop selling Coca-Cola. You should stop selling wine because all of these things can compromise human health and can lead to disease that leads to death. So if saving one life is the predicate for every decision we make, then we should freeze all of those actions too. But they have no intention of doing that. Right. And here's something I challenge the left with. If saving one life is your predicate for your decision, then in Oklahoma in particular, where you just legalized marijuana— why did you do that? Because you know certain users of marijuana will compromise their health and there will be death. Mm. Dr. Everett Piper is my guest. We're going to take a little break and we'll be right back with more. Welcome back. Dr. Everett Piper is my guest. And you know what I love about when you come on, Everett, is it lights up my text train. <laughs> well, hopefully for the good and not for, for, well, for real. Yeah, you stir the pot always, which is, is great. Uh, a listener said not all your listeners agree with this. We nurses and doctors know that there's way more to this. Don't simplify. The virus is a killing machine for certain folks. Now, I get her perspective. She goes probably is a nurse or a doctor and is on the front line of this. And, you know, it's, I, I understand that point as well. Well, I do too. And, and frankly, I agree with her. And I'm not too sure she disagrees with me. Let me say why. I'm not denying that this is a disease. I'm not denying that there are certain people that should quarantine themselves and stay home. I'm not denying that it's my responsibility to be courteous in, around those people. I'm not denying any of that. For example, my mother-in-law is 81 years old. She is staying at home. When she goes out, she wears a mask. And I think those are good decisions. I think those are wise decisions. I am not going to visit her because she doesn't want people coming into her apartment. She's afraid. She's concerned. Therefore, I should, out of Christian respect, and out of respect for her as a family member, I should honor that. However, there are a lot of other people that are not at high risk, and the data proves that. And therefore, let them go to work. Let them do their jobs. Don't shut down the entire economy and put 36 million people out of work because of it. And if we're going to talk about this rationally, we have to acknowledge that when you do that to an economy, not only in the United States, but the world's economy, you're going to have people that suffer. And the number of people that were will, that were, will suffer because of putting our world's economy into a depression are going to be disproportionately greater than those that were suffering from the disease in the first place. And that is simply an empirical fact. That's not simplifying this conversation. That's extending this conversation to the broadest pop possible data that we have available to us right now. Mm -hmm. All right. I think I want to talk about Oki wisdom, o Oklahoma wisdom. <laughs> that makes I decided me smile. to write an article uh, 
Well, hopefully, yeah, this will be a little, a little bit more lighthearted. <laughs> you know, in the midst of this crisis, I decided to write, I decided to write an article that that offered some oaky wisdom to my readers in Washington D.C. and the Washington Times, and hopefully those across the nation, because I think the common sense of sense that is common that that still exists in the heartland, in Kansas, in Nebraska, in, Dakota, in the Dakotas, in Oklahoma, in Texas, and other places. I'm not arguing that's just there. in those states. It's, it exists anywhere where people live off the land rather than live in their office, if you will. Mm-hmm. And I argued that some of the some of the time-tested axioms of the farmer, the rancher, the truck driver, like my dad, the guy that gets his hands dirty for a living, some of those axioms have been tested by time and have endured the test of time because they're true. For example, during a crisis, you might want to attend to this old axiom in Oklahoma, always uh, drink upstream from the herd or never drink downstream from the herd, okay? That makes all the sense in the world. And when you're trying to stay away from other people that are sick, remember that. Never drink downstream from the herd. Here's another one. <laughs> the best quarantine is to stay away is to stay away from the skunks. So that's a metaphor for not only staying away from animals that could make that could make you feel uncomfortable, but you might want to stay away from from some politicians and some pedagogues and some pedantics out there that think they know more than you. The best quarantine is to stay away from the skunk. And here's one I love greatly. If you want to find a snake, listen for the rattle. And if you ain't rattling, you ain't the snake. <laughs> so in any debate, political or otherwise, you might honor the words of Solomon where he said, be slow to speak, and it's better off to listen to, than to open your mouth. Or to paraphrase the Bible, better to keep your mouth shut and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and prove that you are. So if you want to find a snake, listen, listen to the rattle. And if you ain't rattling, you ain't the snake. A lot of these okeyisms, if you will, prove themselves to be very, very valuable in the midst of crisis and in the midst of political discussion and in the midst of argument and debate. Mm-hmm. And Everett, did you grow up in Oklahoma? Are you from Oklahoma? Now, I've lived in Oklahoma for 17 years. I grew up in Michigan. I'm a Southern Michigan boy. Okay. Um, blue collar kid. My my dad was a truck driver, didn't have a high school degree. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. She didn't have a high school degree. Uh, when I graduated from high school, I went to work uh, with migrant workers picking apples in an apple orchard, and I was a third shift employee at a car manufacturing uh, parts, uh, a tool and die shop. And I decided to rush, wash the grease off one day and give college a try. So I grew up in Michigan and moved to Oklahoma 17 years ago. Wow. And did you... Uh... Uh, grow up with grandparents? Did you did you know grandparents? Yeah, my um, my mom's side. I knew uh, my mom's gr- uh, side of the family. I did not know the other side. Uh, my mom's dad, my grandpa on that side, my grandmother on that side. They were farmers. Okay, and then do you have any uh, personal pearls of wisdom from your your grandfather or your father that you still think about daily, weekly, monthly, yearly? Well, it's interesting. My grandma, or excuse me, my grandfather was not a Christian. Um, so the lessons I learned from him are kind of what not to do <laughs> rather than what to do. 
<laughs> so uh, it's it's interesting. On that side of the family, my great uncle, my granddad's brother, died of syphilis because he was in the prostitution business. Mm. Another one of my great uncles was uh, involved. In, he was a pimp on the streets of Jackson, Michigan. So I have a very sordid, uh, colorful past if you will. And by the God's grace, I come out of that experience as a believer in Christ. And I recognize uh, the importance of um, uh, correcting uh, social dysfunction, correcting family dysfunction by conserving the time-tested truths of God that are personified in Jesus Christ and the gospel. Mm-hmm. I do believe that's the first time that's been said on my show. That my grand, my great uncle was a pimp. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's pretty That'll much it. Shock you. Well, no, you yeah. Expect, you expect me to bring? You expect me to bring the red meat? Well, you, you're the one who asked, so there you go. Okay. <laughs> I do like the red meat. So um, this election's important, and the the loss of liberty is a, a serious issue. And any any closing thoughts on that? Again, you have a decision. I have a decision. What are you going to vote for? I've, I think I've said this before on your show, and I'll be very brief here. Oz Guinness, while I studied under Ravi Zacharias at the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics, Oz Guinness taught me this. The day after the Brexit vote, he said this, Everett, if you want freedom, always vote for the covenant. Never vote for a hierarchy. Hierarchies always bend towards power. Covenants always lend themselves to human freedom. The Magna Carta and the United States Constitution are covenantal. The European Union, Belgium and France, and the Democratic Party are hierarchical. And what you see right now in the political debate is hierarchies, assuming that they have power from the top down to tell everybody else how to lose, use, excuse me, how to live their lives. Hierarchies, the oligarchs telling everybody else where to go, what to do, how to buy, what to sell, where to go to church, how to go to church, not to go to church. The hierarchy is is the all-knowing big brother. But the covenant is the people where they rise up in consensus and decide how to live. The governor of South Dakota honored the covenant, the Constitution of South Dakota and the United States. The governor of Michigan is hierarchical, and she is going to tell you how to live your life. So when you vote, do you want freedom? If you do, vote for the covenant. Mm-hmm. Ever, thanks you so much for doing the show. Always like talking to you. All right, blessings to you. Blessings to you. My guest has been Dr. Everett Piper. You can head to his website, dreverettpiper.com. And as we think about Ravi Zacharias and the incredible impact he's had on so many, we here at Faith Radio are going to put together a little montage of people's and listeners' reflections on how Ravi's uh, teaching and ministry has impacted you. If you have a story or something you want to just contribute to that, you can call the number 877-933-2484, and you can just hit three, the prompt number three, and you can record uh, a message on how Ravi has touched your life or impacted your walk with the Lord or anything else that you would like to say about him. Uh, He was a credible teacher and we will miss him, but he is in glory, and uh, his, his his victory is complete. We will uh, take a short break. When we come back, Dr. Kent Dunnington will be with me.
Welcome back to the show. So glad to have Dr. Kent Dunnington on the program. Once again, he has written my very favorite book on addiction. It's absolutely brilliant, and it's called Addiction and Virtue Beyond the Models of Disease and Choice, and that came out in 2011. And then his other book I got because I was all excited because I love everything he does, and that's called Humility, Pride, and Christian Virtue Theory, and that went way over my head. So uh, that's now propping up propping open a window at my house because I can't understand it, but he's with me today. Kent, welcome. Thank you. Hi, Bill. I'm glad to hear that the book is being put to some use. (laughs) Well, it's a little academic, Kent, you'll admit, won't you? I will admit it, yes. Yeah, so... It's like my mother said when she read it, I didn't understand a word, and it's the best book I ever read. (laughs) That's just so like a mother. (laughs) I love it. I love it. But your uh, your book on addiction uh, and virtue, Beyond the Models of Disease and Choice, that is the best book I've read, I've read, uh, read on addiction. Thank you. That's kind of you to say. Well, um, it just it, it's just so well done. So I know what I want to talk today is about a presentation that you gave on the seven myths of addiction. So I'm all ears. Mm. Yes. Uh, yeah. So that was a presentation I gave. Um, I can't remember, maybe a year ago. Uh, I was just trying to think through, I was talking to a group of students who I thought might themselves be uh, struggling with addiction or have folks in their family who work. Um, so I just talked through the seven things that pop up in my own thinking and talking with people about addiction. Um, and uh, I can I can run through them, and then you, you can feel free to ask questions about ones that are interesting to you, Bill. Um, That'd be great. So the first myth that I uh, tried to debunk is uh, that addicted people are especially immoral people. Um, The second one is that addiction is just a disease, and as you mentioned, that's a big topic in my book. Um, The third one is the the idea that one hit or one drink or one experience of an addictive drug or process can make you an addict um, immediately. Um, The fourth is that addiction is mainly about pleasure. And uh, that may be the biggest myth of all about addiction. Um, The fifth is that, so now I'm talking about uh, addiction in the context of Christian faith and church life. So the fifth myth that I discussed is that recovery is a ministry of the church. Um, Sixth is that addicted persons just need to pray more, and that will solve all of their problems. And then the final myth that I discussed, uh, is that accountability is the best antidote to addiction. I think we often think that what we need to be non-addicted people is to have accountability relationships, but I don't think that quite gets to the kinds of relationships we need to live lives that are non-addicted lives. So uh, I'm open to talk about any of those that jump out at you, Bill. Well, just so you know, Kent, they all jumped out at me, but you know, just because I love your book, maybe we should start with the just a disease myth. Uh-huh. Sure. So I think um, the idea that addiction is a disease is what we're all taught now. Uh, it's sort of the consensus view uh, today of what addiction is. You see it in the media, certainly, and it's also in most literature that uh, people read about addiction. And um, it's a fairly recent idea 
But over the last several decades, there's been a great, sort of a public education campaign to enforce this idea. The main evidence that's cited for it is that people who are addicted um, evidence changes in the structure and function of their brain. That's one of the big main pieces of evidence. The other is that there's some evidence that people can be genetically predisposed to mm-hmm. have certain kinds of addiction. And um, there are several things wrong with it, but maybe the easiest way to think about what's wrong with it is just just think about um, a really talented musician. You know, think about someone like Yo-Yo Ma. If if we were to take a look at Yo-Yo Ma's brain, it would be noticeably different from ours. There would be um, parts of the brain that were, uh, you know, really uh, firing up on a brain scan that just aren't firing up for you and me, Bill. And we, <laughs> you put we that nicely, by to, the way, Ken. Thank you. <laughs> we'd be able to correlate those changes in the structure and function of Yo-Yo Ma's brain with his musical ability. I also would not be at all surprised to find that if we did a study of his genome, we'd find that he has a genetic predisposition to be good at music and probably his kids do as well. So there's a case where we have uh, an activity, in this case, a repeated activity that's brought about changes in the structure and function of his brain. It's correlated with the genetic predisposition, and yet we're not at all inclined to think that, that Yo-Yo Ma has a, an addiction or a disease, rather, of you know being a great cellist. Mm-hmm. And the lesson there is just that almost any kind of repetitive behavior that we engage in will change our brains. And many of the forms of behavior that we engage in, we do so in part because of genetic predisposition. But the fact that we have genetic predispositions and the fact that our brains are changed by certain behaviors doesn't determine us to perform those behaviors. And that's the important concept that comes along with the disease. Most folks think if I have a disease, it's out of my control, it's entirely out of my control, and I'm determined and bound to suffer from this thing. And I think that's just uh, overly simplistic understanding of what addiction is. And um, I, maybe I should no continue. Maybe I should say yeah. Maybe I should say though that often whenever I talk about this, people revert to what they take to be the only alternative to thinking of addiction as a disease, which is just thinking of it as a sort of repetitive, willful choice freely engaged in to do what you know is bad or bad for yourself. And so I think the great attraction of the disease model is that it at least gives us an alternative to that because any of us who've been addicted or have known addicted people know that it's not appropriately described as just a a repetitive, willful choice to do what is bad. There's something that we experience like a kind of bondage that makes the disease model attractive. And so what I propose in the book is that actually the category of habit, particularly complex kinds of habits, can explain both that sense of being bound by something, but also the sense we have that we, even though we may be bound, we aren't ultimately determined and we're not in the grips of something that is in every possible way beyond our control. So interesting, Kent. When you repeat an activity over and over and over and you're brain obviously has pathways. There's also ways that we have medicalized certain activity 
because um, you're not a you're not a thief anymore. You're a kleptomaniac. So you've got mm-hmm. you've got an answer for everything. And also, if we medicalize it, then we then we're more of a victim, you know, because I, mm-hmm. I had one drink and it turns out because of my family history, I'm an alcoholic today and I've got this disease. And I always try to figure out what the fine line is. I mean, if you if you eat pixie sticks all day long, which is just your basic tube of sugar, and all of a sudden mm-hmm. you've got uh, um, high blood uh, insulin problems and diabetes, well, you've got a disease now. Uh huh. Yeah. Good. Very good. So I think I think the the difference between um, it, so you mentioned you know it's hard to find the bright line. It is really hard to find the bright line, but the the curious case of you know eating pixie sticks all day long or all kinds of eating patterns that we can engage in that might lead to things like heart disease. So think about how the way that you eat can bring about heart disease. Well, there it looks like um, it is a repetitive pattern of action and it's one over which you have control. And yet, uh, it's still, I think, appropriate to say that a person has heart disease. But here's the difference. In the case of heart disease, the, we, we say that, that, that the organ is diseased because it no longer functions in the way that it's meant to function. So the behavior in question was all the eating, but the disease actually has to do with the function of the organ. In the case of the addiction, it's the actual engagement in the behavior that is called the disease, right? So the disease of addiction is the the disease of doing the same thing over and over and over again. And I think if it were true that that action was explained by a brain working in a way that it's not meant to work, the disease attribution might make sense. But there's every reason to think that even in cases of addicted substances, when we engage in repetitive behaviors with them, it's because our brains are working exactly as they're meant to do. That is to say, they they read off pleasure from the surrounding context and reinforce certain actions. So I just don't think there's enough evidence that addicted brains are diseased in the same way that there is evidence that certain hearts have a disease in the sense that the organ has been damaged. Mm. Yeah, so so if it's this repetitive behavior and we think of Yo-Yo Ma or, you know, Tom Brady is addicted to throwing touchdown passes, um, Uh we, we, we would never talk that way. Um, right, but his his brain probably has the capacity that our brains don't have to throw the way he throws and see what he sees and have the experiences that he has stored in his brain from the the repetition of it. But when it comes to uh, alcohol or drugs, we instantly or food or pornography or anything else, we instantly as- assign a disease, and maybe then we can feel like more of a victim. And then we get insurance to pay for our recovery. Yeah, that's right. And honestly, that's a tricky one because you, know, you mentioned medicalization. Medical, the downside of medicalization is that because of the culture we live in, once you say something is a medical problem or a scientific problem, the person themselves is largely let off the hook for responsibility, but so is the surrounding culture. And so medicalization tends to uh, make individuals victims of some biological process over which they have no control and over which the surrounding community has no control. And I want to say that's wrong. It's, it's not that simple. 
On the other hand, because of the kind of culture we live in, a strictly medical problem is the only kind that we think uh, deserves legitimate help. And I think that, I mean, one of the one of the strange things about all this is that you can get diagnosed with the disease of addiction and, you know, your insurance can pay for you to go to a treatment recovery program. But in many of those treatment recovery programs, what you do is end up sitting around in circles talking to people and reading the big book, right. which, which leads you into a set of spiritual practices yes. and into a rich community. So there's a kind of disconnect there. But I'm hesitant to say, well, get rid of the medical attribution because then we do. Then, then I worry that we stop supporting people going into recovery and rehab, which I think is a very good thing. I I couldn't agree more. And but if I have like a gum disease and I meet with other people and sit around a circle that have gum disease, I'm still going to have gum disease after twenty, thirty meetings. Whereas in right. in drug or alcohol, you might be on a road to a complete and total recovery because of the That's accountability. Right. So the, right. you know, the disease yeah. model, because I, I do know people that, that say I'm, I'm committed to that it's a disease and it's like it's out of my control. And I always, mm-hmm. I always wonder, eh, how much of that is out of your control? Yeah, I sort of find uh, I, I run into people like that too, though a lot of people like that. And I don't know how much we have to gain by resisting the disease descriptor. Right. But what I... What I think is maybe a little bit more helpful is saying, okay, well, um, it is. It may, I'll grant that it's a disease, but let's think about whether all the things that you think of as diseases are literally out of your control. So you think about the way we talk about mental illness. So you know, even depression, severe depression, is. It's true that there are pharmaceutical helps to it, and some of them are absolutely essential. But it's also true that. Uh, some of the best help for depression just has to do with daily patterns of life. It has to do with being in the sun. It has to do with friendships and those sorts of things. So mental illness is an interesting category uh, that is uh, understood as a disease, and yet people also know that certain habits that they can engage in in daily life can help them deal with it. And at the very least, I think it's helpful to point out to people who think of their addiction as a disease that if it is a disease, it's most like a mental illness, and therefore they bear some responsibility for dealing with it. Mm-hmm. Dr. Ken Dunnington is my guest. He is the uh, chair of the Undergraduate Department of Philosophy at Biola University and has written a couple of books. One is my all-time favorite on uh, addiction called Addiction and Virtue, Beyond the Models of Disease and Choice. We'll take a short break and be right back. show. Dr. Ken Dunnington is my guest and I am mad at myself that I only booked him for a half hour because I need an hour. So <laughs> that's my bad. All right. Uh, we're talking about the seven myths of addiction and let's talk, uh, Kent, if we can, uh, the idea that the addictive person needs to pray more. When is it ever bad to pray more? <laughs> well, I didn't say that. I know. <laughs> I, I it's always good to pray more, but I think, I do think that, um, one of the, um, I mean, just think about it. if my thesis is right, that addiction is a complex habit that's deeply ingrained 
in our bodies and in our minds. Um, if, that, if something like that is right, then uh, prayer, although it's important, uh, crucial to uh, full recovery, can't be the only story. Because think about other kinds of complex habits. Um, I mean, I, I, I sometimes give as an example of a complex habit the rules of etiquette or what we might call tact that we that we now have in our in our unconscious and just to, just to see how hard it would be to break those habits you know imagine yourself going to a dinner party and i tell you beforehand that i'll give you a hundred bucks if you can consistently flout every rule of social etiquette so that you, you know, you chew with your mouth open, you spit your food out and you, yeah. you just do, you, you interrupt people. Now, you, if you really concentrated for a minute or two, you might be able to pull off some of those things. But the moment that your concentration lapsed, you would slip back into this huge complex pattern of the rules of etiquette because right. it's deeply habituated. Now imagine, you know, just to take this thought, crazy thought experiment a little bit further, that you decided you really need to get over all that. Well, prayer isn't going to do it for you because these, uh, I mean, short of a miracle, right? I mean, God can do anything. But in the, in the ordinary run of things, what you're going to have to do is engage in a long series of practices that sort of retrain and reprogram you. And so I think prayer is, is it's crucial and it's important. But a, a large part of its importance, though, is the, kind, the way that when we open ourselves to the Spirit, God directs our attention to certain aspects of our lives, certain places in our lives, where with a little bit of faith and trust, we can leverage what little power we have to begin reorienting our lives. So I think prayer is crucial. I mean, there's a reason that prayer and such spiritual practices are central to AA, for instance. But the idea that it's magic seems to me um, to, to not adequately account for the fact that God made us as embodied creatures with free will, and that God wants us to use all of ourselves in the attempt to, to lead more faithful and holy lives. Mm. So is it a myth that one drink or, or one hit of a drug can make you an addict? I think that is. I think it's pretty clearly um, a myth. I mean, it's one of the it's one of the most powerful rhetorical techniques of any war on drugs. So if you think, you know, I grew up in the eighties and I still remember certain commercials uh, from, you know, Nancy Reagan's war on drug campaign uh, where one of them, I still remember is eggs, you know, sizzling in a pan, this right. is your brain on drugs. Right. But the message that I got from that campaign was that there were certain drugs that if you have one uh, experience with them, you're hooked for life. Now, that's a powerful deterrent. It actually worked on me. So I'm not challenging that this might be a powerful way of keeping people from trying drugs, but it's just strictly speaking not true. And there are just there are so many um, experiments of people who uh, have drugs and never become addicts. And you can you can think of a really simple one. I mean, just imagine that you're sent to the hospital and you, uh, after your surgery, you have a series of doses of morphine. Well, you know, what you're having there is a powerful opiate, uh, same kind of concentration and power as people are getting in street drugs, but you can leave the hospital and not become a, a morphine addict. So 
I think the, the, the danger in the reason I call that a myth and try to draw attention to it is that it moves the problem away from communities and societies, where, which is I, I really think the source of most addictive behaviors and the kinds of communities and societies that we live in, it moves our focus from that to the drug. So now the drug has this demonic evil power, and we vilify the drug without getting to the real root of the issue, which is the, the personal practices in our lives and the kinds of communities that we live in. Yeah, so if everyone who went to the hospital and got after surgery some morphine, technically, if the first hit of a drug made you an addict, there'd be a lot more addicts walking around right now. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so what what actually gives drugs and other kinds of addictive practices their power over us is not the just the pure physiological experience. It has to do with the way that that experience is interpreted and the role that it plays in making our lives meaningful. And there are so many experiments that show this. I mean, one famous one is that um, many, many soldiers who were in Vietnam um, became addicted to heroin. And it was widely available. And also they were in, you know, the most inhospitable human condition. Mm -hmm. The vast majority of them, upon returning from Vietnam, simply stopped heroin uh, overnight. The vast majority of them did not continue to be what we think of as addicted persons. And what that suggests is that that drug and the experience of the drug itself wasn't what was doing the work. It was the, the, the way that the experience was interpreted in the context of war uh, in such a difficult, awful setting. So, So the power of drugs has to do with the way they allow us to make our lives meaningful, and you know, this is this is this connects to another one of the myths, which is that addiction is all about pleasure. It's not fundamentally about pleasure. It's about much deeper things like belonging and peace and comfort. And so, it's whenever uh, the experience of a drug or a process uh, is interpreted in a way that it, it gives us those kinds of deep kinds of moral and otherwise other human goods that um, addictive drugs or processes can get their grips in us. Yeah, that's complicated, isn't it, Kent? Because it's not just the pleasure associated, but it's the it's the uh, idea of being a part of something, a part of a group or part of a, a social system or somewhere you can find identity and belonging, which is exactly what you should be coming to the Lord for and Christian fellowship. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, it's striking when you read the, the big book of AA. I mean, almost every one of the stories of a person who became an alcoholic begins with an experience of alcohol. And it has these these two interesting features. One feature is that they get sick as can be the next day. So they describe waking right. up with a hangover, throwing up everywhere. And the other is that the moment that alcohol got into their bloodstream, they had the feeling of, as you say, Bill, of belonging or of being comfortable in their own skin. So what the, the experience has on the one hand, not exactly physical pleasure. I mean, who wants to get sick and feel terrible? But on the other hand, it has these deep emotional and moral kinds of goods. And so it, it's those that draws us into the practice of certain mm-hmm. kinds of addiction. Uh, Ken, I've just got less than a minute. Are all addictions sin? 
Um, wow, that's a big question. No, I don't think so. I mean, we can think, for example, of a case in which a child is born to a severely alcoholic mother, they have strong yeah. predispositions, and then they get hooked at a young age. I don't think that counts as sin. Um, so, no, I think, I think it depends on the context. Yeah. Thank you, Kent, for doing the show. I just I love you being my guest. I wished I would have booked you for an hour. That's my fault. Uh, it's a pleasure to speak with you, Bill. Thanks a lot. Dr. Kent Dunnington has been my guest, and that wraps up our show. That's uh, been a great day. Thanks to Vince Miller and uh, bringing in some books called to act. If you want to get in on that drawing, text the word book to 877-933-2484. Dr. Everett Piper and, of course, Dr. Kent Dunnington. Thank you so much for listening and supporting Faith Radio. I hope you have a great night. I will see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.